Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Since the first one appeared on the docket in 1791, there have been thousands of cases argued in the U.S. Supreme Court. And each one arrived there in a different way. An individual burned a flag. Said, Whatever pain freedom of expression may inflict, it is a principle on which we can give no ground. Another and was I... not informed of their rights upon arrest. Ernesto A. Miranda Petitioner versus Arizona. A president refused to hand over secret recordings. say that the Constitution means what he says it does, and that there is no one, not even the Supreme Court, to tell him otherwise. These become landmark cases after they're decided. But sometimes there's an issue that's so divisive, so prevalent in the minds of Americans, that a case is a landmark before it even gets there. A case that lawyers and doctors, sociologists, and activists had been working on for a quarter of a century before its day in court. Sometimes, you know, you go through things and, well, you know, I didn't know at the time, but they knew at the time they were writing in lightning. Why couldn't them people just go to some other school? They've got a color school here at Knoxville and then uh, Anderson County. I almost cried to get back home because there were so many people. And they looked so mean. They, they looked like they just wanted to grab us and throw us out. They didn't want us at all. I could just see the hate in their hearts. What about you, sir? Do you think the colored students will show up? If I got anything to do with it, they won't show up. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. <laughs> You're listening to Civics 101. I'm Nick Capodice. I'm Hannah McCarthy. And today we are learning about one of the most landmark, landmark decisions in U.S. history. A case that was actually five cases rolled into one. All of them asking this simple question. Does racial segregation in schools violate the 14th Amendment? Is separate but equal equal? This is Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas, 1954. How does such an enormous question even end up before the Supreme Court? Well, the best way to start is in uh, 1896, the Supreme Court handed down the decision of Plessy versus Ferguson. Briefly, it's, it's known for its ruling that uh, state-mandated segregation of the races would not violate the 14th Amendment of the Constitution if those accommodations or services are equal. This is Chief Judge Roger Gregory. I'm the Chief Judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Uh, the Fourth Circuit encompasses the states of Maryland, West Virginia, Virginia, North and South Carolina. Well, what you witnessed in the aftermath of Plessy is the kind of gradual adoption of separate but equal as we know it today. And this is Dr. Yuhuru Williams. He's professor of history and founding director of the Racial Justice Initiative at the University of St. Thomas. Gradual adoption of separate but equal. In other words, segregation laws didn't happen overnight. Yeah, we see this in so many Supreme Court decisions. It takes time for the effects of these big rulings to change laws and customs state by state. What did segregation look like in the United States in the first half of the 20th century, before Brown v. Board. So it's not immediate that segregation signs go up, but over the course of the 30 years 
post-Plessy, you actually begin to see um, kind of the advent of this rigid system of segregation, which most of us associate with the white and colored signs. For example, the first municipality to uh, enact a residential segregation ordinance is Baltimore, Maryland in 1910. That's relatively late. So you're, you're looking at um, certainly a segregationist impulse, and you're certainly looking at um, efforts by uh, municipalities and private businesses to um, segregate, but it's informal and haphazard in some sense, and it increasingly becomes more formalized. And in terms of education, this resulted in massive disparities in school funding. Many states were spending three times as much on white students than black students, and some were even more disparate. For every $5 spent on a black child in South Carolina, $53 was spent on a white child. And then by the time you get to the 19-teens and 1920s, um, segregation as we know it, um, in the form that we're most familiar with it, is, is pretty much um, entrenched in the United States, particularly in the former states of the old Confederacy. But before you think I'm saying that segregation was a purely Southern institution, it was widespread throughout the entire U.S. in completely different ways. And to explain this, Yuhuru defined two terms for me de jure and de facto segregation. De jure is by law, de facto is by custom or practice. A good example of that would be um, the segregation ordinances that require African-Americans or the white and colored races to go to separate schools or residential segregation ordinances which um, deny African-Americans and whites to occupy homes, domiciles within the same block. Um, that's de jure by, by law. And while de jure segregation was more common in the southern states, de facto segregation was in the north. You'd have uh, de facto segregation in education because, because African-Americans like immigrants move into neighborhoods which are um, predominantly uh, comprised of people from that race or that ethnic group. Then the schools and the businesses and everything that's in that community by default is predominantly African-American and predominantly Italian or whatever it may be. The difference with the um, ethnic immigrants is that eventually they're able to escape those spaces. But for African-Americans, thanks to um, practices such as redlining, um, that becomes literally uh, in and of itself a prison and they're not able to escape. I feel like redlining should be an entire episode of Civics 101, but can you just give a short definition of it? Sure. Briefly, redlining grew out of the New Deal in the 1930s in an effort to increase the number of American homeowners. The government increased federal loans for homes. But mortgage lenders refused to grant those loans to people who lived in, quote, hazardous neighborhoods. Those were predominantly neighborhoods with large black populations. We have absolutely no intention of integrating in the South those areas which have been segregated for at least 100 years. So by the time we get to the 1950s, about 11,000 school districts in the country, the majority, are segregated. It was required in 16 states and optional or not forbidden in another 18. So that's where we are, school segregation-wise, when the court hears the case in 1952. So what was happening with the opposition to segregation leading up to this case? The NAACP the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, began the legal fight against segregation in the early 1930s. Charles Hamilton Houston, he was a graduate of Harvard Law, became their first legal counsel. 
Houston later worked at Howard University, where he and Thurgood Marshall and others started, in essence, a think tank, legal minds from across the country, working to conceive a strategy to take on separate but equal. And what did their strategy end up being? Here's Judge Gregory again. So basically, let's take Plessy, even though we don't like it, for his word. File these suits whenever there's demonstrable uh, differences in the facilities. It's clearly unequal, so you bring litigation. And the overall strategy was, was a war of attrition. Their legal strategy at first focused on the equal part of separate but equal. Schools could segregate as long as they had equal facilities, so the NAACP found instances where schools clearly did not. But providing equal facilities cost a lot of money, money that many institutions didn't have. The idea was we need to undermine the doctrine of Plessy versus Ferguson in all aspects of American life. They realized, for example, that in terms of education, the best case they can make early on is in graduate and professional education. Why? Well, they make the case that um, if a law student wants to practice law in a particular state, but the state's answer to not maintaining a separate facility for quote unquote colored students is to send that student anywhere in the country they want to go, provide full tuition. The state's saying, we're offering you a deal here. We're saying you can go wherever else. Eventually, um, Thurgood Marshall, Charles Hamilton Houston, they'll come to uh, the conclusion, you know, kind of brilliantly, um, Thurgood Marshall in the case of Murray versus Maryland, that, well, that's inherently unequal because you're denying that student access to those facilities within the state that ultimately would be successful for them to be able to work and be successful as an attorney in that state. And this was a particular situation that Thurgood Marshall knew very well because he wanted to go to the University of Maryland Law School and had been denied admission. And so he went to Howard, a historically black university. But this strategy, focusing on higher education, worked. So for the first time in these cases, there were victories. But the victory was this. The court recognized that there were intangibles about the educational process that you couldn't make equal. Because these schools, because the states responded and said, okay, we'll start a new law school. And the court said, wait a minute, a law school that's newly minted, months old, versus University of Oklahoma, University of Texas, it's, 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 it's almost a joke to consider that to be equal. So therefore, admission was allowed. So that was the good part. But the bad part is that these cases did not take on Plessy head on. It dealt with equalization. That is until 1950. Charles Hamilton Houston died, and Thurgood Marshall became the head of the legal team of the NAACP. And he shifted the strategy, saying, we are no longer fighting for equal, we're fighting against separate. And he and his team selected five cases to submit to the Supreme Court to overturn Plessy v. Ferguson. Yeah, okay, so I always thought the Brown v. Board was just one case with one plaintiff. What were these other cases about? All right, here is a summary of the five cases that we now know as Brown v. Board of Education. Number one, Briggs v. Elliott. Harry Briggs lived in Somerton, South Carolina, where his son and others had no bus transportation whatsoever to their black elementary schools, which were little more than wooden shacks, and they would walk, in some cases, eight miles to school. 
Number two, Bowling v. Sharp, a group of 11 black junior high schoolers who were refused admission to an all-white school in Washington, D.C. Their black-only schools were shown to be grossly unequal. Number three, Belton v. Gebhardt. This was a case where students in Delaware were riding buses an hour to get to their crowded one-room school. Number four, Davis v. County School Board of Prince Edward County. This is the only case that started from a protest. 16-year-old Barbara Rose Johns led a walkout of her school to protest unequal conditions. And finally, number five, Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka, which, interestingly, is the only case where school facilities were found to be equal and, in some instances, superior. But the qualification of teachers was called into question. These cases were meticulously chosen because they wanted the facts to be different. Washington, D.C., federal jurisdiction, not state. Delaware, a state case, and they won the case. They were respondents. There were some schools where the blacks attended where it was at least equal to the whites. So they wanted to make sure it, this wasn't just about you take on Plessy because the argument what they wanted to make is even if the school is equal or better, there's something inherently, inherently uh, unequal uh, about separation. It was a strategy where they wanted to cover all of their bases. Yeah, Judge Gregory said they were thinking through all the possibilities with these cases to make sure that there was no wiggle room. And the key is this. They wanted to make sure that when they won, that this would settle it for all America. You couldn't say, well, well that was the state. Didn't say it about federal. No, we had state and federal. Well, that was every fact was, and you couldn't say, well, that was blacks in poverty. No, in D.C., they, they had several black physicians, black, black professors, teachers. It didn't matter. Segregation, it was harmful, and they wanted to cross the whole spectrum. But no matter what the circumstance, the harm is done to the black kids who are denied space and now we come to the argument in the court. The case, or cases I should say, were argued in December 1952 to answer the question, does segregation violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment? Who are the lawyers who are actually making the arguments in the court? Due to this being five cases, there were 11 lawyers as advocates. The two most famous, though, were, in one corner... Arguing against Plessy v. Ferguson, Thurgood Marshall. Well, when you live in a segregated community, you find that uh, one group has everything and the other group has little, if anything. And in the other, arguing that states had a right to segregate, John W. Davis. The state establishes the schools. It pays the funds. And it has the sole power to educate its citizens. Since there isn't any archival I can find of John W. Davis, that is from the wonderful TV miniseries Separate But Equal, Burt Lancaster's final role. And what were Marshall's and Davis's arguments? Okay, first, a man who had appeared in the Supreme Court 140 times, John W. Davis. John W. Davis at the time was considered to be the most eminent and prominent lawyer in America. Uh, he was former president of the bar, uh, you know, he was a candidate for president. He was ambassador to England. I mean, he he was just awesome. He made it simple. He said, the court, you are interpreting the 14th Amendment. 
And your, your, your power, if it exists, must exist through the 14th Amendment to end segregation. So let's look at what the framers, let's look and see what their intent was. Davis had three main arguments based on what he saw as the intent of the people who wrote the 14th Amendment. Number one, the Freedmen's Bureau, which was created in 1866, established segregated schools, so Congress could not have meant to end segregation. Number two, Davis talked about how Senator Charles Sumner proposed that for formerly Confederate states to be readmitted to the Union, they had to desegregate, and that proposal failed. And finally, number three, Congress operated segregated schools in Washington, D.C. So how could the same Congress meant to end segregated schools in the 14th Amendment when they turned around were operating segregated schools at the same time. So that's his first attack. Justices, you can't do this when the framers clearly laid the breadcrumbs to show that that couldn't have been their intent. So Davis wasn't interested in arguing about equality. He was only arguing about the intention of the men who wrote the 14th Amendment. Yes, Davis admitted schools were not equal and they should be. But he said the states just needed time to do it. And what was Thurgood Marshall's answer to this? Marshall hardly focused on the intent of the framers at all. He said, and this way he really put it to the court, that the only thing he could think uh, to rationalize this is that somehow it was important to keep these people who had come up from slavery, to keep them as in a position or a status as close as possible to that condition of enslavement as you can. And is now is the time for the court to say that that is not what the Constitution stands for and to make that clear. So he took it right on. He said, basically, you have to adopt that view that is something intrinsic about Uh, the black race, that it must be kept in an inferior status close to slavery as possible, contrary to the 13th Amendment, of course, because it says all vestiges of that servitude. It was beautiful how he tied that into a 13th Amendment theme. And to continue it, the court says the Constitution still stands for that in 1953. That was his response to Davis, which was just, just brilliant. You have same schools, Equal schools, same funding, beautiful building, it doesn't matter. And then what he did, he put together not just argument from lawyers, but a team of experts that were awesome. Dr. Kenneth Clark, uh, who did the Black Doll study and showed how these Black kids were shown dolls and rejecting really themselves. Is the nice doll. Which doll is the bad doll? Kenneth and Mamie Clark's doll test asked black children to point to a black or a white doll when asked, which is the smart doll, the polite doll, or which is the ugly doll, which is the naughty doll. And these children overwhelmingly pointed to the white doll for all the positive traits and the black doll for all the negative ones. What compels the court to act is to show a harm. And they use the tort model, which means in, in law, a wrong. The wrong is the physical and mental damage done to the child. I had to be a moment of just tearful moment, but also a moment privately that for the first time you show in terms of not of science uh, that these things are real and they're very devastating. 
and Marshall made it clear, we may have done it long and announced it long, but these have become echoes of real harm to real children. The court hears the arguments in 1952 and says, come back in a year and argue it again. Why did they do that? Why not just issue a ruling then and there? The court was divided on the issue. And some justices felt that if this decision was not unanimous, pro-segregationists could use that to delegitimize the ruling. And so Justice Felix Frankfurter proposed a new hearing as a stalling tactic to build consensus, impossible as it seemed at the time. But before that second round of arguments, something big happened. President Eisenhower appoints Governor Earl Warren of California as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. The 62-year-old California. What happened is this. Chief Justice Fred Vinson, who had presided over the first Brown v. Board arguments, died in 1953. And President Eisenhower needed to appoint a new chief justice. And he had promised former California Governor Earl Warren, who was just about to take a job as Eisenhower's solicitor general, that he'd have the next vacancy that opened up in the court. And Earl Warren was nominated to be the next chief justice. The case was argued again in December of 1953. And on May 17, 1954... On May 17, this court ruled unanimously that segregation in public schools was not legal. Separate but equal is a violation of the 14th Amendment, overturning Plessy v. Ferguson, and ending school segregation. And it was unanimous. Scholars agree that while the ruling would have been the same if Vincent hadn't died, the unanimity was secured by Chief Justice Warren. He convinced one justice to drop his concurring opinion and another to drop his dissent, and Warren himself wrote the opinion. The opinion is beautiful in its simplicity, and brevity. The court said quite plainly, we cannot determine the intent. It was brilliant. We can't do it. It didn't hem and haw and try to, you know, pontificate and scratch the chin and head, like, you know, some opinions do. We can't tell. So we move on. And we must assess in modern day time, what is the importance of education? So that's how he got to it quickly. And what he said, there's nothing probably more important in a state and local government function than to educate its children. It is the window through which everyone develops, how they become a thinking person, how democracy thrives because people are able to function, be productive and understand their rights and those things. And he doubts that and the court went on to say that any child could succeed without an education. Warren's opinion ends with, we conclude that in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. It reminds me of, um, of Alexis de Tocqueville, who in the 1830s traipsed about America and wrote, you know, American democracy. He said, America's greatness is not because we're more enlightened than other nations. He said, our greatness is our ability to repair our faults. And I can't think of a better example of that than Brown. But what next? How does desegregation happen in those 11,000 school districts? The Supreme Court made a new ruling in 1955, which they just called Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka II, to give their recommendations on how the decision should be implemented. Now, remember, the Supreme Court interprets the law. They can't enforce it. 
They can't fine a school or arrest a principal for refusing to desegregate. But they did use four famous, some now say infamous, words about how desegregation should happen. With all deliberate speed. Here's your hero Williams again. It's not so much that Brown led to um, immediate uh, desegregation. In fact, the language of the court itself becomes contested. What does all deliberate speed mean? You've got some municipalities who look at that after they, you know, exhaust efforts at interposition and nullification and other efforts. You know, Jay Lindsay Allman in Virginia closes the schools for a year rather than see them opened on an integrated basis. Then you've got other places, you know, other states that go, well, all deliberate speed. Um, we think that we can accomplish this by 1980. So they're kind of kicking the can down the road. The timeline of desegregation of schools is lengthy. Most famously, in 1957, a white mob of protesters, as well as the Arkansas National Guard, prevented nine students from attending Central High in Little Rock, Arkansas. Little Rock, Arkansas, and the first phase of the trouble. The white population are determined to prevent colored students from going to the school their own children attend. Picketing the school, they clash with the police. The law of the land agrees integration. And in response, President Eisenhower federalized the National Guard and sent 1,000 soldiers from the 101st Airborne to protect those students. So at what point was total desegregation of schools actually achieved in the United States? The answer to this is complicated because while no public school officially says this is a segregated school, schools in America are enormously segregated. A study in 2016 found that over half of American school children attend a school that is predominantly white or predominantly black. And the barrier to integration is due to income inequality, to unequal practices like redlining, even to the placement of train tracks in a town. But the fact is, schools in America do remain segregated. I think part of the challenge with Brown um, and this kind of tortured relationship with Brown is that there's a recognition on one hand that Brown versus Board of Education was an important milestone in the struggle for Black equality. No matter what, in terms of how we think about what it actually accomplished, it repudiated the doctrine of separate but equal. The problem is that it's an articulation of principle. And in practice, Brown really hasn't achieved. In fact, one could argue that the efforts to maintain the segregationist impulse were so insidious that things are worse today. When people make the argument that, you know, maybe we should retreat from um, the promise of Brown versus Board of Education, it's coming in some sense from that wound and the narrative that comes from if Brown was meant to create equality by ensuring absolute equality and access to public education, it failed miserably. If the metric is that it got rid of separate but equal as articulated in Plessy and opened the door for interrogation of, of how you dismantle that in other areas, it was an absolute success. But in terms of its primary directive, desegregation of schools with all deliberate speed, it would be difficult for anyone to argue at this point that Brown v. Board was a success. It sounds like Yohuru is saying that while this case was a tremendous victory, schools are just one part of an unequal system. Discrimination in housing, employment, the criminal justice system, these issues are all intertwined. That's right. And changing laws does not necessarily change minds. Brown is an amazing victory and an amazing story. 
You've even got Thurgood Marshall becoming the first black justice on the Supreme Court 13 years later. Historians will note this hour at the White House. In a Rose Garden ceremony, a 58-year-old great-grandson of a slave is nominated by President Johnson to be a Supreme Court justice. He is Solicitor General Thurgood Marshall, acknowledged the best known... But the half-century since that decision has been a series of gains and losses. Many other movements, including the fight for rights of other minority groups, have been helped by the Brown decision. But many of the issues at the heart of Brown, the promise of equality for all people and how to achieve it, remain. That's it for the Supreme Court episode on Civics 101. Follow us on whatever podcast thing you prefer to keep up with how these justices interpret our lives. This episode was produced by me, Nick Capodice, with you, Hannah McCarthy. Thank you. Thank you. Our staff includes Christina Phillips, Mitch Skocki, and Jackie Fulton. Erica Janik is our executive producer and rides in lightning while her dogs hide from it. Music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Sarah the Instrumentalist, Scott Holmes, Jesse Gallagher, and that producer whose beats are never vague, Emily Sprague. Our show is and always will be free to listen to. So show your support of it with a donation at our website, civics101podcast.org. Civics 101 is made possible by our listeners and is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio.